Blog Talk Radio. Hello, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today we're continuing our series, the 11 skills toddlers use before words emerge, and we're all the way up to number nine, which is teaching a child how to imitate others. Now, when I first talk about this with parents, many, many times they think that I'm meaning... (laughs) the obvious or meaning something they've already tried and so certainly when a parent brings a child to us as an early intervention professional so as a speech language pathologist like me or an early interventionist some other discipline and when you (laughs) have a late talker all every every single parent of a late talker has has tried looking at their child and saying say cookie say mama tell me bye-bye And so then when you talk to them about teaching a child how to imitate, sometimes I feel like they sort of want to roll their eyes and say, don't you think I've already tried that? Because, again, that's second nature. That's what we think about when when we're really pondering how do I get this kid to talk. Or even before it gets to that point, when you're waiting on those first words and when you are, even when you have a 10 or an 11-month-old, baby, you're certainly doing those. You're trying to do anything you can to coax those first words out of those sweet little mouths. So a lot of times when we talk about imitation with parents as therapists, we need to get really, really clear that, yeah, we're talking about teaching them to imitate words, but that actually comes down the line after we've seen these earlier easier kinds of imitations so let's just talk about how imitation emerges and let me just say (laughs) i teach a six-hour course on this so we're we're doing the fast version right now if you want the the detailed very specific step-by-step-by-step instruction for this. And if you're a therapist, you need to get yourself a copy of my course, Steps to Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. It's on DVD. It's with ASHA uh, credit. So you can use it for any kind of credentialing or licensure or whatever you need for that. But it'll walk you through in much more detail than we're going to be able to talk about today in this 60-minute show. But there's, there's actually... Again, that super, super resource for therapists. If you're a parent and, again, you're feeling like, okay, I like this hour to get me started, which, by the way, is enough for most parents. They aren't as, uh, let's see, how should how can I say it nicely? They aren't as picky as, as therapists should be about making sure that we nail this information and understand every single little step and level in this hierarchy of teaching imitation. So for most parents, this will be enough. But even if you're a parent and you're thinking, hmm, I wish I had some more ideas here, my book, Building Verbal Imitation and Toddlers, will explain all of this in much more detail if you feel like you need it. But for the down and dirty one-hour version, let's get going talking about how we teach a child to imitate. And again, learning how to say words comes well after these other easier earlier kinds of imitation are established so what do we start with we first start with teaching a child how to copy actions now we can have a kid copy actions with objects actions with their own little bodies so let's just start with actions with objects because that's usually what we teach first although sometimes we may see actions with bodies 
come first. And again, this can be a little bit individualized, but let's just for the general discussion here, go with actions and objects. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about you show a child how to do something with an item and then you give him an opportunity to copy you. So let's just take some examples from play, which is always a good idea to start with play when we're teaching a toddler anything and everything and play is developmentally appropriate. And if you're not thinking about using toys, if you're thinking, oh, everything has to be really embedded in a daily routine, let me just remind you, play is a daily routine. <laughs> play should be a major portion of every toddler's life, whether they're a late-talking toddler or a typically developing toddler. So let's start with examples from play. So let's just take a common toy like a ball. So if you were playing with a ball with a toddler, what are some things that you could try to get him to imitate? Certainly when I ask a parent this and when we're talking just, you know, and I'm just talking with them and we're discussing imitation and I'm saying let's just talk through some common examples before we try to do some of this, of course the parent's going to say something like, well, we can throw it, we can kick it. Those kinds of things are fantastic, but actually you can go even easier than that. And you always want to think easy, easy, easy at the very beginning. And again, why do we think about easy? It's to facilitate success. So you always want to think, let me start with where I think I can get the most uh, cooperation or the most participation or the most likely that this child will do it. And again, with a ball, certainly most toddlers who see a ball are going to pick it up and throw it anyway. So sometimes when we use something like that, again, we do want to start with the obvious, but you're not quite sure, hmm, did he throw that ball because I threw the ball first or did he throw that ball because that's what he would have done anyway, regardless had he seen me do it initially. So I start with something like patting the ball. So just a little, you know, with your open hand there to pat the ball or even something sillier like kiss the ball. That's kind of fun for toddlers and they think that's usually hysterical if they are tuned into you and have that little spark of humor emerging. They think that's kind of funny. So anything easy like that, it might even be something like putting the ball on your head or on your knee. And again, you may start with things like throwing and kicking just to get the toddler engaged and involved and wanting to be with you and wanting to do what you do so that he's not running off to do something that's more fun and more entertaining to uh, capture his little attention span. You can start with those things, but, but if you'll do things like patting, putting it on your head, putting the ball behind your back, something that's a little bit unexpected, then you really, really know that imitation is emerging. So that's our first thing. Show a child how to complete actions with an object. So we've talked about a toy. Let's talk about, though, how we do it in daily routines because don't get me wrong with what I said earlier. Daily routines are vital, and, and embedding our strategies and our intervention techniques, it's, they're so important to get going all throughout the day so that therapy isn't just, you know, at 10 o'clock on Tuesdays when the speech therapist comes or, you know, that, that time that mom and dad have set aside to specifically work on uh, the things that we suggest in therapy. So, just, so they're little home therapy programming. It's really, really, really important in addition to that that children have many, many, many opportunities to practice throughout the day. So really 
saying we're only going to embed things in daily routines. I mean, that's great, and the kid gets it all day long, hopefully every day, but you also need those set-aside times too. So that's why you can't really do one or the other. You have to do both. So let's talk about some ways that we can get a kid to imitate actions with objects in the context of daily routine. So let's just take a few. Let's talk about meals. What could a kid do to imitate at a meal? Now, again, some parents are going to say, take a bite of food. And of course, that's probably what the kid would do anyway, but let's start easier. So what could we do? We could have a kid bang his little hands on the table or his high chair tray or wherever you're feeding him. You could do something with the utensil, like hold the spoon up, hold the spoon down, bang the spoon on the tray. Anything like that where the adult is modeling or showing the action. And if, when you're doing this, you can't be just <laughs> pretty laissez-faire about it where you're just going to kind of give a half-hearted effort. You've got to be totally into this where your face looks fun and your voice sounds fun and you are, are doing Again, something very purposefully so that you, with the intention of I want my child to copy and imitate what I've done. So those kinds of things you can certainly try. You could One fun little thing to do that's kind of a turn-taking thing is you, when you have a cup and he has this little sippy cup, do cheers. Do you know what I'm talking about with that where you're like you're doing a toast with champagne glasses? And, of course, you know, the toddler version of that is the sippy cup toast. The kids think that's really, really fun. And, and then they'll learn how to initiate that too so that they're going to hold their cup up to you for you to pick your cup up and do that little toast. So that's always a fun little idea. Let's move on to something like bath time. What are some things that a child might imitate in the bathtub? Certainly you can do some things with his toys in the bathtub, but I like to do start splashing the water or just patting the side of the tub or um, let's use some example with toy, examples with toys. So if you have a boat it would be in the bathtub, it would be pushing its boat. It might be holding the boat underwater and then letting the boat pop up. It could be um, using the toy on the side of the, you know, making it walk up the wall. So if you have the, a duck in the tub with you, you know, you're, you're taking his duck and you're saying something like, oh, look, look at my duck, see, walk, 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 or up, 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 up. And again, you're not listening for the word yet. Don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> what you really, really, really want to see here, your only goal is will he do what I have just done? Will he take this object and copy the exact movement that, or try or some version of that so that you know, hey, he's learning how to imitate. He's copying me. And again, I didn't say this at the beginning, and this is what I should have led with. <laughs> Imitation is such a big part of typical development. And really, it's how we learn everything through the rest of our lives. It's how we learn how to ride a bike. It's how we learn how to drive a car. It's how we learn how to tie shoes. It's how we learn how to swim. It's how we learn how to cook. We watch other people do it, and then we copy it. And so virtually, until we're older and can read instructions and things like that, early in our lives through childhood and and adolescence and you know even on into early adulthood 
even older, you're going to see episodes of, hey, that's how I learn now. I watch somebody do it. That's why YouTube videos are so popular uh, for learning something new or, say, fixing an appliance or, or solving a problem with your computer. You want to see somebody do it. And, again, that just really supports how important imitation is even as we age and, and get older. So it's a really, really critical skill that starts in toddlerhood. All right, so back to ideas that we can do to help a child learn how to imitate with objects. Let's do something with clothing, like getting dressed. So, well, let's back it up first. With changing diapers, which we all have to do with toddlers many, many times throughout the day. What are some things that we could do during diaper changing that would help a kid learn how to imitate actions with objects? And again, you can think think silly and think simple. So it might be something like, you know, you give the child the baby wipe and he has the baby wipe and you swing it around in the air or you put it on your face or you blow it. Any little action that you could used to capture his attention and then get him to want to copy you. Um, let's think about what we said dressing before. Anything, again, obvious. So like if it's winter where you live right now, and certainly in the United States, the Northern Hemisphere, it is not. It is summer here. But let's just say something like a hat. Put the hat on your head and then, you know, give him an opportunity to do that too, which he, he hopefully would do anyway because that's the expected action with, a hat. But let's think about some other things. What are some other things you could do? And again, start simple. Hide it behind your back. Put it on your knee. Um, you know, hide it under your shirt. Anything like that where you are doing something and then your child tries to do it after you. So let's talk about other things that might hamper this process. So what do you do when a kid won't do that? You can always start by trying to imitate what he's already doing with the object in hopes that that will be novel enough for him, for him to stop what he's doing and look at you like, hey, <laughs> you just did what I did. So that's what we call in, in therapy terminology reciprocal imitation, meaning that you're going to watch for what he does, and then you're going to do it too. A lot of therapists start there, but I'll just tell you, I don't really start there. I back up there. I try to get a kid to copy me for a while, you know, several little turns with several different objects. And let me just say, you would never, if you're working on imitation with a child and that's your goal, you still have to put this in the context of another activity. You can't just kind of go in and say, okay, now we're going to do imitation today and I want you to copy everything I do. Here we go. And then expect that I'm going to parade out this toy and see if he'll do it. And then I'm going to quickly switch to this toy and see if he'll do it. Don't do it like that. Just have it be pretty naturalistic so that you're doing it in the context of other things. So you're thinking, okay, if we're going to play cars here, what can I do with my car that this child can imitate? And again, after I'm seeing, gosh, I've done 10 different things, you know, over the course of how many ever minutes, and he's not imitating any of these things, that's when I might back up to reciprocal imitation and think, well, you know, let me just meet him where he is, let me just follow his lead here, back up to copy what he's doing, and then see if I can engage his attention there. If you're getting nowhere with that, I really always then go to hand over hand, meaning I do what I 
I'm first showing him with the toy what I'm doing. And again, it looks like play. If if my intention here with the cars is that we're going to bang two cars together, we're setting up a crash, I would do that several times. If he's not doing it, then I would reach over and take his little hand, put it on the car, and have him crash the car. Some kids really don't process even what even if it looks like they're watching you, they still sometimes can't make the connection with, oh, I can do that too until we help them and until we show them how to do it. So don't be reluctant to do the hand over hand thing. And if you've tried to get a kid get imitation going again, you know, for the better part of a session and you haven't tried hand over hand, immediately go to that. <laughs> and I wouldn't even probably wait for half a session to do it. I would give him some time to see if he can do it on his own. And then if he can't, I know, man, I've got to provide some hand over hand assistance here. And again, for parents, if that's a new term for you, it's just making your kid do it or helping your kid do it. And we certainly do that all day long with other kinds of activities we do with our children. We're the, when the, we're get, trying to get them dressed, if they don't put their leg in their pants, what do we do? We do it for them. We take their leg and put it in. And so this is the same extension of that very natural parenting technique <laughs> that we all use. And so, again, that hand over hand or helping them know how to do it can go a long way with imitating, learning how to imitate actions with objects. All right, so let's move along here. What do you do next? What's that next little step? If you have a kid that's imitating pretty well in play, what, what's next? Move to imitating or teaching them how to copy your body movements. And again, we're going to start easy. So this would mean that we might do something like run across the room and see if we can get a toddler to chase us or run with us, all right? It might be jumping. You can jump in place or if you have a trampoline or or some, if you're a parent and you want to jump on the bed with your child, fantastic way <laughs> to get him to imitate body movements. Marching is a really fun one that toddlers like to do. And again, you want to start with gross motor body movements. And for parents listening, if that's a new term, big body movements, something that a kid can do with their whole body. Then you want to make it a little more refined, so something with their hands. So clapping, uh, you might even do swinging your arms as you're marching, any other little thing that they're still doing that's a body movement. Once a child gets pretty good at imitating the gross motor kinds of things, and again, think about kicking, think about, you know, stretching their arms way up to get something, or if you've just kind of devised a little game with that, then you want to make it more refined to move on to something like hand motions in a song. So we've already mentioned clapping. So something like if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And you can certainly use that little song. If you're happy and you know it, stomp your feet. If you're happy and you know it, pat your head or pat your belly. Blow kiss, anything like that. Again, that would be a simple hand motion for a child to do. And remember when we're taking the pressure off imitating by using something else so that the kid doesn't even realize that he's copying you, something that's a little bit, again, distracting and taking the focus off him being able to do something he hasn't really done before, music is a great, great way to do that. And because the child is focused on the song and having fun, he may imitate in that context, whereas he's tried with these other things and he hasn't done it before. So it certainly is a good way to get those things going. Now, 
use your same kind of hand of assistance guide here as well. So let's say that you're just trying to get a kid who's doing his own thing to try to imitate you with these body movements and he won't do it. And remember, we're going to start with something easy like running. What would you do if you, you know, run yourself to death trying to get him to run with you and he hasn't done it? Get another adult or you to just kind of scoop him along and do it with you. And so you can still use that hand over hand physical assistance tip even here with getting a kid to imitate body movements. So certainly, certainly that's something for you to try. All right, so after body movements, what are some things that we can look at? Make those body movements, bump it up a little bit and make them more communicative or communicative, however you like to say that word. So when you've had a kid who can run with you, who can march with you, who will hop, when you've hopped, who will do some little hand motions in songs. Again, you're moving toward using language. That's the, our overall goal here is to teach them how to talk. So even then, you want to teach them, gosh, you know, my body movements here have a purpose. I can communicate with these things. So that's when you would introduce things like waving bye-bye or blowing kisses when someone is about to leave or even something that's super communicative, like shaking his head no when he doesn't want something rather than screaming or crying or pushing you away. So move toward teaching those gestures. Now, a few weeks ago, I had a little little early summer hiatus where I haven't done the podcast lately, but uh, several weeks ago, we did a show on gestures and how important it is, how, how, that, uh, how we move through teaching a child to understand gestures and remember he's got to understand those gestures before he can use the gesture so go back and listen to that show because if you've been listening and thinking about a child who you love or who you're working with with you know how ready is he to talk you know we've worked through several you know we're up to skill number nine here and and here we're to the point where we would want him to imitate some gestures but listen guys if he's not understanding the gestures you're going to get nowhere with this. So back up, as I always like to say, and you back up first and listen to that show about gestures to make sure that he understands this. And some of this, you know, again, is sequential with children, meaning Here, it is show number 284, so understanding gestures. And again, we're on show number 287, so three shows ago. So go back and listen to that if you need some more ideas about other kinds of gestures that a child can imitate. Let me also sneak this little bit of information in, and I think I mentioned it in the show, uh, but I want to remind especially therapists who are listening to this. Uh, Amy Weatherby, who's a uh, professor at Florida State University and is a speech language pathologist has done some great work with gestures and some of her newer information is, is that she shares with parents and kind of her public awareness campaigns that they run through the First Words Project really talks about that typically developing toddlers have 16 gestures by 16 months. And so for those of us who work in early intervention, we talk about gestures and how important they are and how we know that gestures precede words in typical development and we talk about it and we talk about it and we talk about it but still when we hear a statistic or a recommendation and we realize that 
typically developing toddlers are using 16 different gestures by 16 months, that's still a little bit shocking <laughs> for some of us sometimes because it's just a big, fat reminder of how easily these skills emerge in children with typically developing systems and skills. So think about variety too. Don't just teach one or two little gestures and then think, uh, you know, kind of do your mental check the box with, oh, he's doing that, let's move on. Really look at variety there and increase the frequency of the gestures that he's using. Even if he's only using a couple of gestures, you want him using those all day long so that you have that frequency there. And sometimes we have to build frequency before we can build um, variety here or before we can we can get lots of different gestures going. So go back and listen to that show on gestures and get that information so that you're being sure that you're teaching parents new gestures. So you're not just relying on one or two or three little things that a kid can do. You want a big variety there. All right, so what do you do? Once you have a kid imitating gestures, what's that next little step. Guys, then it's moving to teaching simple sign language. And some of us as SLPs get this a little bit backwards when it will know, okay, this kid isn't talking, so signs would be a great strategy. I'm going to use some signs. I'm going to teach him some signs. But we don't look for readiness for helping a child learn how to use sign language. And so we jump straight to teaching a kid a sign for more when he can't clap or when he doesn't clap in imitation of us. And so be sure that you're thinking <laughs> as you were introducing these strategies and that you're thinking, does this make sense? And so it really doesn't make sense to introduce sign language to a child who's not imitating any kind of body movement. And it really doesn't make any sense to introduce sign language to a child who has that you see no evidence of symbolism or symbolic development. And again, if you're a parent and you're listening to this and you're thinking, whoa, that's kind of over my head here. I don't really know what she's talking about. Let's talk about symbolic development. A child has to learn that a word or a sign, even if he's saying it or if he's hearing it, that it represents something else. And so here we're talking about gestures. So he has to really learn, hey, when I wave my hand like this, it means that I'm telling my mom bye-bye. So she's leaving, I'm leaving, somebody's leaving. That's symbolic. He's learned, hey, this hand motion stands for something else, okay? And so that this is what happens a lot. We'll try to teach a child sign language, and then when he doesn't get it after several weeks or several months, we just kind of give up and say, well, that's not going to work. And we don't really think about why isn't that working? What's our missing piece here? And it could be that a kid isn't symbolic yet. Cognitively, he's not ready yet to understand, hey, when I use this hand motion, it means this. And guys, he needs to understand that kind of thing before he will be able to use words meaningfully. Do you see that connection there? And if you're a therapist, you need to walk parents through this process. This is how you need to explain it to them. You know, it's not just that we want him to wave bye-bye. It's that we want him, or you know, copy the hand motion. We want him to understand what he's doing. We want him to, for that message, for him to have 
attained that that ability to recognize, hey, that means I want to leave here or I'm about to leave here or I want this activity to cease. I have a lot of little friends who will learn how to wave bye-bye and then when I start to (laughs) do an activity with them that they don't like, they'll wave bye-bye and that's telling me, hey, I want this gone. I don't want to do this anymore. And certainly typically developing toddlers will do that too. They may say it, you know, I've got a cute little therapy clip if you've seen my course early speech language development taking theory to the floor sweet little friend of mine um, named Emma who has down syndrome Uh, any there's a couple little clips of her in that course where I'm trying to get her to do something she doesn't really want to do and she waves and says bye 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 you know that's one of her only words but oh gosh what a good communicator there because she's telling me I don't want to do this anymore you know she she was really symbolic she understood that message not only with her little word there but with her waving and so my point here again is we will try to teach a kid a sign or a word or to get a kid to use a sign or a word before we know that they really really understand it or before they become symbolic and again if you have listened to this this series in order because I've been off for several weeks from the show You may need to go back and listen to a few of the earlier shows just to remind yourself what we're talking about here. So following simple directions, understanding what words mean, that receptive language piece, that's what we're talking about with cognition too, with building the ability to understand what something means. And again, that's before we get to words if we're going to think about it with body movements or with actions or with signs. Now, I have a couple of good articles at teachmetotalk.com about helping children learn how to use signs. And we have to remember that we should pick signs that are meaningful for children. And there's a lot of um, controversy in the field of speech-language pathology and early childhood development in general about teaching Signs that are very general, like more or please, signs that can be used in multiple contexts throughout the day. Some therapists believe, no, we have to teach, you know, really specific signs, really concrete labels for things, and we should avoid those words that become or signs that become over generalized meaning that a kid only uses the sign more and he uses it for everything all day long and he doesn't move on beyond that he gets really really stuck all new talkers generalize like that so if we're thinking about correlating signing signing with talking and I I know I've probably said this on the show before but let me just remind you of it anytime a new talker has learned the word ball he may call everything that's round ball and again we don't look at that as oh there's a big problem with this we better not you know teach the word ball because he might use it for apple and he might use it for oh you know anything that's round that that's in that shape you know anything that he sees like that he's going to call a ball so we better avoid teaching the word ball do you see how silly that is? And so to say, I'm not going to teach the sign for more because he's going to generalize it. Or, or let's take another example. Every kid, not every kid, but many, many, many toddlers will see a man and what do they call him? They say dada because in their little, in their point of development where they are, any man, uh, that's their word for it. 
you know, again, would we say, well, I'm not going to teach the word dada because he might call everybody that. No, you know, no, we don't do it like that. So don't be afraid to teach those general signs like more and please and help. Those things, those words that are signs that are really, really powerful because the word is powerful and the parent can practice it over and over and over throughout the day with lots of different contexts. So lots of different opportunities to teach that sign. So if you want a list of that, again, you can go to teachmetotalk.com and click on the show, the post for this show, which is 287, and you can read for more ideas about using signs with late talkers. And um, I'm also going to link that little article that I've written in defense of more so that if you're a therapist and you need to kind of wrap your head around, if you've learned, oh, I don't want to teach those really general signs, that's not a good idea. But in your heart, you think, oh, my goodness, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. And you want to solidify your thinking here and your rationale, or if you need to be able to defend that position, that article in Defense of More will help you do that with um, knowing that, hey, it's okay to teach those more general signs, especially at the beginning. But we won't leave a signer there. You know, we want to teach lots and lots and lots of different signs. So, again, a child really learns the power of communication and learns variety and learns that he can be really, really specific. And, again, some children will need to sign for quite a while before those first words um, start to come in. So, again, don't think, oh, I'm just going to teach a sign or two, and then if we don't immediately move on to words, you know, oh, let's forget the signs. Increase your variety and your frequency there, too. So if a kid has used a couple of new signs with you in a session, by increase the frequency with that, I mean that he needs to be using that sign with mom and dad at home, too, and with the babysitter and at daycare. So you're going to increase the frequency, and then you'll increase the variety. And by increase the variety, I mean that you won't just teach him two or three little signs. You know, if you have a kid on your caseload who knows two or three signs, you want him to know ten signs in the next month or six weeks. So that's increasing the variety. So always think about those kinds of both of those concepts there with not only do I want him to do what he already knows how to do more often, and I want him to, anytime we teach something new, we want him to increase the frequency of that, meaning that he needs to use that sign or word or whatever we're talking about, whatever skill we're working on. We want him to use that more frequently. Then we move on to expanding his repertoire. Then we move on to teaching the variety. So I hope that makes for you and as you're a therapist that you'll think about those both of those concepts and balancing that you know it's not enough to teach 10 new signs in one session if uh, the parent or whoever's working uh, whoever sees that child the daycare teacher whoever you're working with whoever the adult is for that child it's not good enough just to teach the kid that in sessions he's got to be able to use it over and over and over and so it really does you no good to focus on that you've got to get that frequency going too so don't sacrifice variety for frequency or frequency for variety you have to have both of those components all right so what's our next little step so after we've taught him to sign and we've gotten some nice things going with signing where do you go from there then do you jump straight to words 
No, not for most late talkers. Now, let's just contrast this with typical development. So many of these skills with the typically developing toddler are coming in all at the same time. They're waving bye-bye for a few weeks, and then before you know it, they just start to pop out that little word, and that is fantastic. But for our little friends who are late talkers, they usually stay in these phases. They get to the phase later. Their, their development is slower, and they stay in that phase longer than we would like. And that's just the nature of um, speech-language delay. It's just the nature of uh, that developmental lag here, and so, or, you know, whether it's a delay or disorder. And so we know that for some kids, they can't make that jump from gestures to words that we see happen pretty quickly in typical development. There's some other things that have to come first, these easier, earlier vocalizations. So I've written several articles about this, and I've linked them in today's post, so show number 287 at Teach Me to Talk. You can look at those there, but let's just talk about some of these phases. And again, if, you'll, if you have the book, Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers, it outlines all of these next little phases, again, in much greater detail than we'll be able to talk about here, and certainly the course that I mentioned earlier for continuing education credit will um, certainly teach you how to do this in a more sequential way than we're able to talk about it. But what are some things that would come between signing and saying words? Lots of children will need those little play sounds to come in first. And so what do I mean by play sounds? These would be, let's think about in typical development, when a baby who's eight or nine months old, and maybe a little bit earlier, but certainly within that range, learns how to copy you when you're fake coughing. Do you remember that? If you're a mom, uh, if you're a therapist and a mom, and remember when your baby learned how to fake cough, that little, <coughs> and how fun that was with that imitating, that little game, that little turn-taking game that you would play with that. And let me just say this, I've forgotten to, I didn't say this earlier and I should have too. The main reason or one of the benefits of teaching a child how to imitate like this is we're really setting the stage for conversation. And what do I mean by that? It means turn-taking. It means I talk, you talk. I talk, you talk. I talk, you talk. Okay? And so, again, even before kids get to that word phase, we want them to have that reciprocity. And we've certainly talked about the skill as we progress through this series, and remember reciprocity does mean turn-taking, that back and forth. And so it's really, really important that we get that going, that we establish that process before we get to words. So before a kid would be conversational, got to make sure that he understands that turn-taking piece or that reciprocity piece. And so that's, again, one of the functions and one of the reasons that we teach imitation and that we spend so much time on it and that it's so important because we want to get him to get that idea early on with we take turns as we communicate. You know, you're the talker sometimes and you're the listener other times. And, you know, I, mom talks, I listen, I talk, mom listens. And so, again, that's another important concept. And if you're there, you need to be talking about that with parents because that's not something that they may naturally think about. All right, so back to easier, earlier vocalization. So what are some other little play sounds that we can do here? You may think about things like car noises. So, you know, you know, any of those little fun sound effect kinds of things. Dads are usually so great 
when we're talking about working with the child at this level. And again, you want to be purposeful with this. So this is what you're listening for. This is what, as a parent, you are modeling. You are saying for a child so that he can begin to imitate you, so that he can start to try to do some of these sounds. And again, this is not something that you can just be really flat with or have a flat affect with you have to really play you have to really make this look and sound pretty fun you've got to make your face exciting and you know your eyes are going to be bigger and you'll be smiling and you're doing everything you can to get the kid to pay attention to you so that he can eventually imitate what little sound you're trying to make here it could be something like animal sounds so anything that you can spell here <laughs> so let's think about you know woof 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 for a dog but it might even be easier than that like panting the <laughs> those little sounds all of those little things you know fake sneezing that little achoo or if you want to do it you know more you know not quite as word like any little sound like that I've got a cute little article at Teach Me to Talk called Let's Make Some Noise, Eliciting Play Sounds with Toddlers. So you've got some great suggestions there. It could be um, after a kid has taken a drink from his cup that you do a big ah. Uh, dads like to teach that one too. So that certainly is a great start. And for so many kids who are not developmentally ready to imitate words, this is where you'll get the most success. And so this is where I start with lots and lots of kids uh, that I see that are that are just straight late talkers. And by that, I mean that they don't have difficulty with receptive language. They don't have difficulty with social interaction. Their cognitive skills are moving right along. They're, they're just, this is just an expressive problem. And so I do like signs, and I do start with signs and then certainly introducing signs. But especially I would say in the last five years, if I get a kid and I know this is just an expressive issue, this is where I start with these little play sounds. And again, if you are looking at your building verbal imitation and toddlers chart, I have a chart there with these levels of imitation. You know, we're here, we're looking at levels four and level five where we're doing play sounds and then we move to exclamatory words. Now, what do I mean by exclamatory words? These are words like, yay! and whee and uh-oh, little words that convey emotion, and they're called exclamatory words because we usually exclaim them or we usually yell them or have some kind of affect or emotional content when we use them. But any of those little words are going to be more fun and more novel for a late talker to try to imitate than, say, going to a real word. <laughs> All right, and it's just, again, a little trick or a little tweak, especially for our little friends, too, who have been challenged to participate with us and play with us and play with us. So our little friends who have these super busy sensory systems, many, many times exclamatory words are where you'll start with these kids because they pick up on those. They're, little, they're in high gear all the time anyway. And so when you introduce... A little fun word like, um, you know, woohoo or yippee or yay to go with all of that emotion, that seems to stick a little bit because it makes sense to them in their little worlds. They're, they're crashers. They're, you know, they're runners. So they like that high level of activity. And, again, when we can introduce little exclamatory words to match their 
body movements and match their emotional um, output, that's certainly another reason for them to try to talk and to want to talk. And they start to really, again, understand that power of communication. So for a little guy, again, who would be super high energy, you wouldn't just pop bubbles and, you know, do pop, 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 you know, in a real boring monotone way, you may say something like pow, pow, you know, and really instead of popping that bubble really nicely with this, with an isolated index finger, you know, punch it, fist. And those kinds of, if we'll tailor our what that we model or, or if you're a parent or if you're a therapist, if we're tailoring our targets, <laughs> We're picking our target, our target words here based on what we know a kid likes to do and based on his regulatory level, based on his communicative intent, based on his what you see him, if he could talk, what would he say? If we base our language models on that, we usually get much further too. So a kid who sees something that he likes, so let's say there's a toy that's um, let's say it's a spinny light toy so it's something again that may be completely new and so instead of saying look at that shiny bright light we should probably just say something like wow wow and again you'll make it as exciting you can make your voice you've simplified and again he needs all that language he needs to understand that the word for that that matches it is light he needs to understand the adjective is shiny or bright or whatever. Yeah, 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 we'll get to that, right, with the comprehension piece. But when we're really just thinking about the expressive language here, don't start with those words. Start with exclamatory words like wow and whoa and ooh and ah, those kinds of things. And, again, just think about the complexity of that utterance anyway. That would be a much easier target with um, – those exclamatory words than the real word would be anyway. So think about those little play sounds um, that you can use. Let me give you a couple of more ideas here. Uh, we've already talked about animal sounds, and again, for kids who like to play with animals or read little books about animals or who have animal puzzles or who see animals on a regular basis, <laughs> those are going to be fun ones to do too. Because again, when we have a prop, so like a toy, that we're playing with, it's just like we talked about a minute ago with music. When you can take the focus off, I want you to talk with your mouth, and the focus is on, oh, look at this cow that we're playing with or this cow in the book or this cow that we're seeing as we drive by <laughs> in the country. Um, wherever you may live, if you see animals like that, it's again, the focus is on that object. And so kids who have been late talkers sometimes do better when we can take the pressure off so that when we're really talking about that cow as we're playing with our toy and we're we're into it and as the adult you're you're not saying, Oh, what sound does the cow make? Tell me the sound the cow makes. You say the sound. You say moo look at this cow moo and you make it as exciting and inviting as you possibly can. And again, that will sometimes just totally take the focus off the child where some kids need the direct cue with say moo, tell me moo. And some kids cannot do it unless we give that direct cue. But for most 
toddlers, you just being really, really, really excited about it and giving them enough exposure to that so that they have the opportunity to hear you say it over and over again. And again, you are just acting like this is the most fun thing you've ever done in your life. For some kids, that approach is going to be better because you've taken the communicative pressure off. You're not right in their face saying, do it, because... For some of our kids, especially our little guys with motor planning issues or apraxia, that kind of intense pressure almost ensures that a kid won't be able to say what you wanted him to say. And we certainly are going to work him up to being able to do that on command. But for some kids at the beginning, they just cannot do it. So you have to really, really rely on making it fun and setting the stage and making them want to do it. So that motivation piece has to really, really be there. And, again, you can't reach in a kid's little body and make that happen. It's external for you. You've got to make it fun enough and exciting enough for a kid to want to do that. And for some parents, just changing that feature alone really getting down on the floor with your child, really being super focused, thinking, okay, I'm not going to check my phone. I'm not going to, you know, have TV on in the background. I'm not going to think about what I'm cooking for dinner after this. I'm just going to focus on playing. I'm going to be really present in this moment, and I'm going to focus on having a good time. I'm going to focus on sounding fun and looking fun and and really being here with my kids. Sometimes just that shift in how a parent will play with the child and really get that time piece going so that it's not just 30 seconds here in two minutes here so that a parent is saying, hey, I'm going to sit on this floor for 30 minutes and I'm not going to do anything else and I'm going to play and I'm going to have a good time and I'm going to model these sounds. I'm not going to pressure my kid to say a lot of words. I'm just going to sit here with him and we're going to play with these cars and I'm just going to say boom and crash and, you know, irk and whoa as we drive these cars around and, you know, I'm just going to make a silly sound that I can think of. And lo and behold, many, many times that's what it takes. Just several play sessions of really, really apparent focusing on having fun and focusing on modeling sounds or easy vocalizations that aren't words and where there's not a, as much pressure with say it, tell me, you you have to save the car, you can't play with the car. Don't do any of that. Take the pressure off, especially when you've tried all the pressure stuff and that doesn't work either. <laughs> That's when you know you've got to really back it up and make it a lot more fun. And again, meet a kid where he is. So start with these little play sounds. Now, Therapists will recognize this many, many times when we begin with a child. When they come to us and they're a late talker, they may already have a handful of these kinds of little vocalizations. You know, they may, mom may say, he says, uh-oh, and he says, he tries to say meow for our cat. And we'll just ignore that. We'll just go straight to, well, I've got to teach him some words. I've got to get him some functional vocabulary. But that child is telling you by what couple of little vocalizations he's already managed to acquire, he's telling you, this is where I can be successful. This is what I like. This is what draws my attention in. This is, I, I need words that are simpler. I need words that are more expressive with emotional content here with uh-oh. I need, uh, I, I need you to go easier for me. And so if we'll, again, pay attention <laughs> 
to those kinds of clues that a child is giving us he's already telling you don't skip two words and again if you're if you have my book building verbal imitation in toddlers and you look at the little levels there words are at level seven um, single words functional vocabulary but these little play sounds are back at like level four so you can see that it's an easier uh, initial prerequisite level and sometimes we just skip right over that with kids we would never think oh you know I'm going to purposefully target animal sounds or I'm going to purposefully target exclamatory words and so we don't really get there and and you know this show is about imitation so a kid can't say those things until he's heard someone else say those things and as I'm working with parents and talking about this concept of we want to go with easier earlier vocalizations and we're teaching imitation and we're you know talking about all of these things that's related to their specific child sometimes they'll do things like they'll pick a couple of little exclamatory words and they'll work on them and you know I, I won't see them for a week or two and then I'll, I'll go back and we'll have our visit and they'll say you know Laura that didn't really work I, you know I think we should just skip all this I don't think he likes those kinds of words that's never the problem guys it's usually just uh, opportunity so the parent has to model it a lot we have to let the kid hear it a lot sometimes it's that the a parent has picked an exclamatory word that phonemically phonetically whatever word you want to use here that child doesn't have the ability to produce those sounds yet and so if we just think about and play around a little bit with what our target exclamatory words or play sounds would be will do a little bit better and by that I mean you know let's just say a kid can already say mama and that's his loan word or let's say he says mama and bye-bye so what do you know about that kid and, and you may say well he already has two words we jump straight to single words sometimes that just doesn't work we've got to back up a little bit so for a kid like that you would with if he has a uh, his vocabulary is mama and bye-bye we can get a lot of information there we know he can do initial bilabials because he has two he has an m and a b already so then you would think well okay if I'm thinking I, I need to take what I know about this kid I'm going to back up I'm going to get some play sounds going first some easier earlier vocalization so let me think of any kind of fun little sound that I can do with some bilabials and again if you're a parent listening to this I've kind of lapsed off into speech pathology land here <laughs> using those words but bilabial means a sound that you produce with both your lips so think about it like M how do we do that we put our lips together mm, or B our lips are together but they pop a little bit with B for B so we would think oh what other little fun sounds would start with an M or a B and just so you know P is also in there because P is the same sound as B really except we don't turn our voices on so it's not vocalized so you would think okay I want to teach him any little fun crazy sound that we can make him play or even to be a little bit more expressive in daily routines that's that starts with an M a B or a P so you could do you know mm, 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 for cook you know when he's eating a cookie or you could do you know moo like we've already talked about for the for the cow or meow like we talked about for a cat so think about those things match the sounds that you hear him say in other either little words that he's already managed to acquire or just in his babbling or vocal play when you hear a little sound that he can do 
automatically think, how, what can I do? What can I shape that into? What can I turn that into? What's similar enough? And if you'll go back, instead of trying to match it with single words, start earlier. So match those existing sounds in his repertoire with play sounds. And again, you've got a Go look at the article at teachmetotalk.com, show number 287, and you'll see some links to some other posts that will help give you some ideas there. One other thing here that uh, we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, and it may be the next show, actually, where we'll talk about verbal routines and how verbal routines can really help a kid start to move toward that single word level, but the word is highly tied to context it's dependent on context and so we'll get there I don't want to jump ahead here but a lot of kids even need that step before they're able to really produce single words in imitation or on command we have to you know there's another little in-between step between <laughs> the play words that we talked about today the exclamatory words and then before we get to single words the point of today's show, though, is just to think about how important teaching imitation is and to really give us ways to target imitation and not just at the single word level. So let's kind of recap what we've done. First, we taught a child to imitate actions with objects. Then we bumped him up to body movements, so imitating our body movements. Then when he could do that, we made it a little more complex with body movements that really communicate, so with gestures and simple sign language. Then we moved on to play words, so those little play sounds that we talked about, fake sneezing, uh, burping, you know, like a little what, you know, again, kind of a pretend little noise there, animal sounds, car noises, exclamatory words. That's kind of what we ended with. So I hope that this has given you some new ideas so that you can think about teaching a child to imitate, and especially when we've tried imitation with our little friends who aren't <laughs> saying words on command. This is something we need to think about. This is something we need to work on. So I hope that's given you some new information. That's all for today. I hope you'll join me next week. I'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.